What up, guys? All right, today I'm so freaking excited. I feel like I need to drum roll. All right, that's me banging my hands on the table because today, guys, I sit down with the epic woman and one of my close homies, Mel freaking Robbins. That's right. Mel Robbins um, is on today. And when I say, man, damn, this one is a special one, guys. She shares things that she's never, ever admitted out loud in regards to her relationship and how her and her husband of 26 years were recently at the brink of actually breaking up and you know Mel she's so open and so vulnerable and so honest about it we go deep on about disrespect toxic people how you identify toxic behavior and how to approach disrespect in your relationship but here's the thing guys most of all she's very freaking candid and actually shares how she was the one that was a toxic person in their relationship she actually calls herself the asshole in her relationship as always Mel does not disappoint she shares some freaking hard pills to swallow. But homies, guys, I know that you don't want to miss this one because these are the nuggets that we really do need to hear to know when we're in a toxic relationship, but to also know if we're the toxic person. So guys, check this episode out. Tag me, Mel, and let us know what really resonated with you in this episode. And guys, if this really did bring value, I ask you to share it, tell your homies about it. Let's spread women of impact globally. Let's impact all the women out there that need to hear from us. So guys, share, tell your homies, and now on to the episode. She's freaking real. She's no BS. She literally will sit here and tell you the truth. We feel guilty because we think we're responsible for somebody else being happy. Today on Women of Impact, the fiery motivational speaker. It's real easy to point the finger. Best-selling author. But the power is in looking in the mirror and taking responsibility for what you're going to do. And star of the Mel Robbins podcast. This is an embarrassing thing to admit. Mel Robbins tells us how to spot toxic relationships in our lives. Dude, I think that that is so freaking strong. It actually brings up that shit from childhood that got stored in your body. Let's go deep, girl. Happily married for 26 years, Mel shares the moment that nearly tore the couple apart. Did you give him an ultimatum then? I did. Finally, I said, here are my non-negotiables. How are we going to talk about this? Mel Robbins in the freaking house. <laughs> Lisa! Girl, I absolutely love you. Welcome to Women of Impact again. Thank you. Thank you. All right, today we're yeah. going to talk about disrespect. Oh, okay. And I wanted did to. Did I do something? You did not. Oh, okay. But you speak so eloquently about how to identify when someone's disrespecting you okay. and then what to do. Now, here's the thing. When a stranger's disrespecting you, I think it can somewhat be easier to identify and have your own back. But what happens when you're being disrespected in a partnership? I think a lot of us may either make excuses, oh, they're just going through a hard time, because we want the relationship to work so badly. So let's start by talking about what are the signs that you've noticed in a relationship where you have personally tried to say, hey, I've noticed you're crossing the line here. What is that sign? And then how do you handle it? That is a great question. So you're talking about in my relationship with Chris? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, what's interesting about this as it relates to Chris is I feel like he probably has more instances where I am disrespecting him because I tend to be more, I'm just more of everything. I'm the whirlwind. I'm the one with ADHD. I'm the creative force. I'm the tornado through the house. And my husband 
is a very centered, very pulled back, very even kind of personality. And so I think there are lots of places where he has made requests that I do not follow through on. Okay, pause it. This is freaking amazing. <laughs> and here's the thing. I've heard you say that in it where you were going through signs and then you're like, oh, I do that. Oh, I do that. And that is beautiful. And the reason why it's beautiful is it's not about necessarily just them, right? It's not about if someone's disrespecting you only, what do you do? It's right. the fact that are you being the dis disrespect into the relationship yes. and are they forgiving you because they want to see good in you and so when we talk about how to have a successful relationship you've been with your husband for so long I've been with my husband for so long and it's the nuances of it's not just them it is you as well oh it's a hundred percent you so so here's the thing about somebody else disrespecting you you know when it happens because your energy shifts in response to what they did. So I'm going to give you an exam, two examples where I'm the chief offender, okay? Actually, I can now think of like four or five, so. <laughs> Let's go deep, girl. <laughs> well, you know, it doesn't help that I am married to a man who you know uh, well, who is a Buddhist meditation instructor. He's a certified yoga instructor. And today was day one at the age of 53 of him beginning to get his master's degree in something called, I think it's called transformational psychology, which is all about spiritual psychology and therapy. So the guy is so introspective that he is calm. He is like the opposite mm -hmm. energy of me and it has really worked. But there are times where I create major disorder, Lisa. And I would imagine knowing you and Tom and knowing how Tom is just so, and the genius of his brain, and knowing how you are, <laughs> that you probably have some of the same things. So here's an example. Cardboard boxes. I hate breaking down cardboard boxes. And we live in the age of Amazon, and so there are always cardboard boxes being delivered. And I will unpack cardboard boxes, and then I neatly stack them by the door with the intention that at some point I will come back and cut them apart and flatten them out. I never do it. Like I literally never do it. I will carry them out to the garbage. They make it all the way to the garage, stacked like a Jenga puzzle, but I don't take it across. This drives Chris fucking crazy. Okay, that's one. And because he has asked me a thousand times to do it, I should do it. Because what he has said to me, Lisa, is when you don't do this, it makes me feel like I'm the maid or the custodian in our relationship. Another example is that I, this is an embarrassing thing to admit. Like now I'm coming on like confessions on Lisa's couch here, but I have really bad ADHD. And one of the things that I'm embarrassed to tell you. <laughs> Go on. It's <laughs> that I blow my nose and I will blow my nose. And the second I'm done blowing my nose and I start walking toward the garbage can, I literally forget that the Kleenex is in my hand. And then, and I will walk past the garbage can. And then all of a sudden I leave it somewhere. It drives Chris crazy. And so the thing that 
I think is really important is that Chris keeps bringing it up. I've gotten way better at the cardboard box situation. He now understands that I don't want to do it just then. He likes to do it just then, but I don't like to do it just then because I'm thinking, what if I have to return this thing and I need this box? Mm -hmm. So I need, like, Lisa's literally zoning out already. She's like, Mel, you're fucking nuts. No, I'm like, I get his point. (laughs) Right? I'm the one that wants you to cut the boxes, and Tom's the one that's like, why on earth would I spend even a second of my time cutting the box? Yes, completely. Now, the reason why I think this is so important is we're joking, right? It's like, oh, it's a cardboard box. And like, oh, my but this is that. everything. Exactly. Because this is the moment, or these are the moments that we all know, and I think to your point is, you do that long enough, Mel, he's going to start to build resentment. Of course. You know, and I think here's the other thing. It's very easy when somebody speaks to you in a demeaning way mm. to call that out as disrespect. It's very easy when somebody uh, is verbally abusive to call or gives you the silent treatment to call that out as disrespect. But these small sort of injustices or these small sort of Mm -hmm. passive aggressive things that create friction inside of you, this creates this distance emotionally between the two of you. Mm -hmm. And you are exactly right. It's inside these small things that all the resentment build. And it's also inside of these moments that you start to become sequestered emotionally from one another. And so, you know, those are two examples where in our relationship, there was on Chris's side, this deep feeling of being disrespected. On my side, the issue that kept coming up in our marriage, and this is even something that we've been talking to our marriage therapist about recently, which is, We have um, an incredible relationship, but one of the things that really hasn't been working and we didn't realize it is that my addiction to being busy, which is something that I have been doing a lot of work on, makes me be 15 steps ahead of Chris. And if you're with somebody for 26 years who is always 15 steps ahead, oh, I already booked the plane tickets. Oh, I already got a reservation. Oh, it's it's all handled. Basically, what happens is my over-functioning and busyness has trained my husband to basically go, why bother? Because either Mel's already handled it, or if I try to do it, she'll, it won't be the right thing. Mm. And so Chris withdraws into his corner, right? While I'm like out over here running 15 steps ahead. Now, while I'm out over here running 15 steps ahead... I'm going, why is nobody planning anything for my birthday? Why, you know, am I the one that's always doing this? Why is this? And Chris over here going, I don't have this, like, she's not letting me contribute. And this has been something that has become this well-worn thing between us for 26 years. Really, the, the thing I wanted to get to in this episode very specifically with you is there are signs of other people maybe mistreating us. So there's a lot of women that watch this show where they're stuck in relationships that they may not even be able to identify as toxic. And so where are those signs of the toxicity where maybe someone's manipulating you, gaslighting you, stonewalling you? But the second part to it is, this is what I feel about true freaking female empowerment, homie, is you've got to own your own shit. And so while I sit here and I really wanted to talk about what are these signs that someone else may be showing us, I absolutely wanted to talk about, well, how are you showing up? 
Because I'm, I don't want to be that like, oh, well, it's them. Oh, it's them. No, no. Relationship is freaking 50-50. If you believe it's 50-50, how the hell are you showing up? Yeah. And if you think you're showing up, oh, I'm amazing and I'm the... Are you really? Are you actually giving your partner what they need? And so that was where I wanted to go. How do you know the way they're behaving is based on who they are or the way they're behaving is based on how you're responding to them? I think it's both. So, so it's an excellent question. And so here's what I want to say about it. If you want to know how you are showing up and if you want to truly improve how you participate in that relationship, simply send your partner a text that says, how can I be a better partner to you? And then ask for specifics. And Chris would tell me, well, you could flatten the cardboard boxes. You could throw out your Kleenex. You could put your phone down at six o'clock at night. You could, um, uh, you could take the dog for a walk in the morning. You could be more present. You could, like, he, he would have a whole list of things that would make a difference. And most of us don't bother to ask. So that's number one. You're not even asking. And when you ask that question, your job is to listen and elicit more things for you to do. It is not to defend yourself or to give feedback. And so that's number one. Number two, let's just go generally to disrespect. Because I answered the question by saying, you actually don't need a list of all those things because you know in your body when something's not right. If somebody's gaslighting you and they're making you feel like you're the one going nuts because they're like, I didn't say that. And you're like, well, yeah, you did. You feel friction in your body. You start questioning something. That is not your natural state. If the relationship works, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, you will feel energetically aligned with the person. We, we, we are energetic human beings. The second that you are around a stranger or a friend or a parent or a sibling or uh, a lover and something feels off or you feel any kind of bad vibration, there is all the evidence that you need. I'm going to throw something at you then. Because yep. in that situation, I agree, but sometimes so many of us have taught ourselves to ignore it, taught ourselves to dull that feeling, because maybe from childhood we've been We taught, didn't teach ourselves. We were taught to. We were taught to. So over time, we carry that with us. And so, mm -hmm. so many of you're 100% right. If you can acknowledge, oh, this is uncomfortable. But I think so many of us in those moments start by going, oh my God, what did I do wrong? I must be going crazy. You even said it, right? So how do we break that notion of us going straight to, oh my God, it must be me. I must be going crazy. Instead of saying, well, hang on a minute, sit with it. So um, I've been talking about this a lot lately. But I um, have spent the last two years really doing a ton of work on my own nervous system regulation mm -hmm. and on trying to heal anxiety from the neck down in my body. And so I want to say that, yes, we were all, especially as little girls, our generation, and I'm a little bit older than you, but our generation grew up with a parenting style and method of the time, which is to correct children, 
to make them behave. It was not about connection. And for many of us, there was a complete mismatch with the way that our parents uh, communicated with us and what we actually needed. And so a lot of us were taught in childhood that love is transactional, that I love you when you're behaving, I am proud of you when you get good grades, I survived that, it's no big deal. And so there were moments where the big word is separate. You felt separate from the person, your mother or your father, who you needed to feel attached to in order to be safe. Mm. And when you have an experience of feeling separate, an alarm goes off. And it could be literally something as benign as you fall and instead of getting a hug, you're lifted up and told to get back out there. It doesn't hurt. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. It could be as simple as you really wanted to play the flute, but your parents were like, nope, everybody in the family plays the trumpet. Here you go. This moment of feeling separate and it makes you feel unsafe. And what you get trained in is you get trained to feel like somebody's happiness and keeping everybody okay is your job. And you like all guilt comes from one place, which is we feel guilty because we think we're responsible for somebody else being happy. That's where it all comes from. Because children can't go, oh, mom's having a bad day, that's why she's being a bitch right now. Children go, oh, I feel separate from her and she's angry and so something must be wrong with me. That's the source of all anxiety. It's the source of all alarm. It's this feeling of being separate and unsafe because you're not getting what you need. And so how this relates to toxic behavior is we are so used to making excuses for everybody else. We are so used to feeling like somebody else's okayness is more important than ours. We are so used to thinking that being liked and being loved means managing people's disappointment because a lot of love from the parenting style of our parents' generation is transactional. It's about correcting us. It's about, uh, you know, our, that generation was not even taught about our emotional needs. It's not their fault. They didn't get it either. And so I feel like step number one is you got to understand that whenever you have that like first wave, so let's just take something really simple. Your sister, who you love, mm -hmm. when you're little, would come in and borrow your shit and not tell you. And your mom, if you got upset, would be like, just let it go. Mm. Right? Yeah. And so I don't know that that happened in your house, but we had- It was probably more the other way around. I think I was stealing her shit, but- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, as the mother of two daughters, I saw this all the time. And so, you know, I, if you're not validated in that situation, you start to feel like you don't matter. And so what happens is if you're an adult and your spouse does not like slice the cardboard boxes, it actually brings up that shit from childhood that got stored in your body. That experience of being separate, that experience of being uh, not seen, not important, not loved. And so the first alarm that goes off is the alarm from the little you that didn't get the reassurance or love in that experience from childhood. And it's always triggered by moments of separateness. So in your romantic relationship, like I, you know, I'm even processing this live with you right now. 
when I put the Kleenex on the uh, countertop and not in the garbage can underneath because of my ADHD. I literally like just have a brain like, forgot about it. I didn't even, I didn't even remember it was in my hand. Mm. When Chris sees it, he has the same experience from childhood of nobody being home when he got home from school. He doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if he asks because they have an excuse. That is what that brings up in his body. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? And so the first thing that you need to do is to understand that that discomfort in your body, let's not call it anxiety anymore. Let's just call it, it's the little you. And you need to give yourself a little bit of love and reassurance just right in that moment. Because you didn't get it as a child and your body keeps triggering it in moments of separation or moments where you feel invisible because you remember feeling that way as a kid. We all have this. Everybody has this. Then you just, you can put your hand on your heart. You can take a deep breath. You can just like be like, whatever, like whatever you need to do to go toward this thing, instead of going, something's wrong and kill my spouse. Like there's such a, just be like, oh, whoa, there I go. I feel a little like there it is. That's that little me feeling invisible, feeling like I don't matter. I do matter. And you know, what Chris does now, which is super helpful is he takes a photo of it. He doesn't touch it. He takes a photo of it and then I always just apologize. You're, oh my God, I don't even remember doing that. I am so sorry, thank you for leaving it for me so I can take care of it. And thank you for not throwing it out because I didn't leave it there for you. Mm. I'm trying, you know, and I appreciate your patience. So that closes the loop, but you will never express the boundary that you need to express until you also address the alarm that keeps going off. Because you're not even giving yourself the basics of what you need. So there's no way in hell you are going to express what you need to another person. No way. And so all boundaries, they don't start with, like, and I don't even like saying, like, a toxic person. I like saying toxic behavior because then Mm. it puts it on you. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not a toxic person but I engage in toxic behavior. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply.
As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. It's powerful. Right? And here's why I like calling it toxic behavior versus a toxic person. We are in too much of a cancel culture. Mm -hmm. We ghost people, we label people and toss them to the side. And I believe that every human being is capable of changing. And I also believe that if you want people to become better, whether that's better in terms of their mental health or better in terms of their habits or addictions or beliefs or whatever it may be, you have to fucking create room for people to change. And by labeling somebody as toxic and then just tossing them out the window, you are not identifying the behavior that doesn't work for you. And when you start to go, the behavior of, si- of you giving me the silent treatment is toxic behavior. And this is what my boundary is with it. Now, look, I realize your comments are not going to blow up with people who have been in relationships with narcissists. And, you know, that you, <laughs> they are toxic. Maybe their behavior's toxic, but isn't it also toxic for you to gossip to your girlfriends and not do anything about it? Isn't it also toxic for you to beat yourself up in your head and, and like not leave a situation like that? And by the way, don't you dare sit here and accuse me of saying anybody deserves anything. What I'm trying to say, because nobody deserves to be abused. What I'm trying to say is it's real easy to point the finger but the power is in looking in the mirror and taking responsibility for what you're going to do. And having been a, you know, I I worked a domestic violence hotline as a crisis intervention counselor for four years. And so there is the psychological entrapment. There are very real reasons why people stay in abusive relationships. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about your garden variety bullshit that happens in a lot of relationships, being passive aggressive, not asking for what you need, not pointing out what somebody is doing wrong, but gossiping about them instead, Uh, tolerating the same crap over and over and over again and never saying anything, which is like the reverse form of the silent treatment because nobody is going to get better if you don't tell them what they're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that I also do that's toxic 
is for the last two years, um, uh, we have been in the middle of renovating a house in Southern Vermont. Our son is going to the public high school up there. And so my husband, Chris and I have literally been back and forth and back and forth and back and forth between our house that we have lived in for 26 years outside of Boston while we're renovating this place in Southern Vermont. And it's a three hour drive. And while we were under renovations, I couldn't be filming videos there or doing virtual speeches there. I had to be in Boston. And so I would go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it was exhausting. But here's my toxic behavior. Whenever Chris would go, well, why don't I come down? Oh, no, it's okay. You don't need to make the drive. I'll be up on Friday. And so my other toxic behavior in this relationship is literally not letting him help me. And then being burnt out and pissed off that you never come see me. <laughs> right? right? Yeah. And then building, yep, building that resentment as well. But yes. it's actually not true. It's, it's a not true. story that you're telling yourself. Yes. Because my toxic behavior is I just got to take care of myself. Like I'm not used to somebody else taking care of me. So I, you know, it's just what it's like as a little girl. I take care of everybody's emotions and you're like, I, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so I think, you know, a couple things that we've covered so far. Number one, all you need to know about toxic behavior and, you know, that sort of disrespect is that you will feel tension or you will feel some sort of something in your body, friction in your body. There's your sign. Second thing that you've learned is that a lot of times that alarm that's going off when you're either experiencing disrespect or you're disrespecting yourself, that is a stored memory in your body from being a little kid and feeling separate or invisible. So step number two after recognizing it is give yourself a little love, give yourself a hug. There's a super cool technique that Dr. Russell does where you like take a towel and mm -hmm. you like, you know, kind of pull a towel like this around you, like, oh, like, giving to, like yourself give yourself a hug, hug. Yeah. but you do it actually not like this, but with a towel. Huh. It's really cool. Mm. And then the third thing is once you've sort of turned off the alarm, now ask yourself, what is the request you need to make? What is it about the thing that the person said or the thing that they did that is triggering this in you? And the thing about giving another human being feedback is I think it's really important to make sure you understand how to explain the impact that their behavior is having on you. Because if you just go to somebody and say, can you please just do the freaking cardboard boxes? Or Chris would get really upset with me and be like, you know, they can't pick up the cardboard boxes unless they're cut up. And so now I'm being made wrong. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to, of course, it's human instinct to defend yourself when you're made wrong. But when Chris comes to me and says, you know, if the boxes sit for more than 24 hours, I know you're not coming back to get them. And that means that you believe I'm going to do it for you. That makes me feel like I'm your hired helper. What I'm asking is I'm okay with you leaving the boxes stacked like a puzzle for 24 hours because I know you might need one of them to ship something back. But either 
set an alarm on your phone and slice them down, or come to me and ask me if I can do it for you. Mm. So in addition to telling what's the behavior, why, how does it make you feel and why? And the third piece is, this is what I need you to do. Because you know what you need the person to do. You know what's not working. You know why it's causing friction. And that is all you need to do in your relationship. And so now you've taken care of this alarm that goes off that comes from childhood that makes you feel separate or invisible or unlovable or unloved. You have soothed yourself, which means you're now giving yourself what you need. And now you're empowered to ask somebody else by saying, this is the behavior. This is how it makes me feel. Because when Chris tells me that's how it makes him feel, I feel like a fucking asshole. Because I love the guy. I don't want him to feel like that. Because that's not what I mean. And so when I know the emotional connection to executing this task, I am 10 times more likely to do it. Because a cardboard box stacked by a door does not mean anything to me. I'm going to jump in here because this is so damn powerful. And you guys have really worked on your relationship. What about those moments? Because you're a freaking alpha, right? You're like a whirlwind. You come in. This is what I'm doing. Like, you're a beast. And I freaking love it. I mean, I love it. You know I do. Right? So, like, you're, you're, you are this beast. And because I've met Chris, I know how, like, sweet and quiet he is. And, <laughs> and so I actually really want to go deep into being an alpha woman because I think this is super important. In moments like this where you're with your husband in, in the past, and, again, I know that you've really worked on it and that's very eloquent of where you've got it now, I'd love to go back a little and say, like, really for um, the audience to hear how you've actually navigated to get to this point. Because you've um, definitely spoken about, uh, what do you call it, the breadwinner resentment rage. Yes. So if you don't mind taking that, in case sure. people don't know your story, which you've told before, but if you don't mind going back to the moment sure. where, like, five-second wall freaking takes off... Um, because I really want people to hear where you've come from in your relationship because it is so powerful how you navigate, how you've navigated, how you show up, how she shows up, your triggers, his triggers. Because there's one more thing I want to add to all of this is you can't change them. Stop trying to change them. They have to do it themselves. Yeah. So to hear how he's evolved is so powerful. And then to also hear how you have evolved is so powerful. But it has been you guys have done the work separately and then seem like you've come together. Yeah. So I'm going to preface everything that I'm about to say with this disclaimer. Everything that I'm, that I'm saying, I can only speak to the pressure that Chris and I felt as a heterosexual couple. Okay. Yeah. Because so much of the dynamic about resentment and alpha female and all that shit has way more to do with the pressure that are put on men to provide. It has a lot less to do with you being an alpha female as it does with what society says to dudes if you're not the one making the money. Ooh. And I didn't realize how um, big of a deal this was truly until about a year or so ago. So Chris and I, when we met, we both worked. We both contributed to 
everything. We paid our bills together. We didn't have joint, we didn't have separate accounts. We just threw it all in together. He worked, I worked, we just ham and egged it. You know, we were co-parenting, co-earning, co-this, co-that. And then he got laid off from a job and decided to go into the restaurant business, which had been a dream, and stepped into entrepreneurship, something he had always wanted to do. It was what his MBA was in. And I was fully not supportive. <laughs> I was pregnant with our son. And I'm like, wait a minute. Um, God, we're, we're like in that stage of life where what? we're making the ends meet. But that's it. Mm. Was there a trust fund that was part of this arrangement that I'm not aware of? Like, how are we supposed to pay our bills if you're not working? I did not sign up for this. And he basically said, I'm miserable. I'm absolutely miserable. I do not want to work for somebody else. And um, I'm willing to sell the house. I'm willing to downsize. I am not willing to be miserable to pay for a lifestyle. And we were not living like high in the hog. I mean, this was like not mm. we're like we're not living in like like it's literally like we're in suburbia. And so I'm like, oh, shit, he's 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 serious. So at that moment, I said, fine, we did some math. I said, you have eight months. You got to be earning X. I will take a second job. I'll do whatever I can. But you got eight months. There's your runway. And if at eight months you guys have not brought in the funding and you can't be making this, still trying to make it even, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in eight months, they land the funding. He makes the money that we had calculated and all is fine. So continue to go on where the restaurant's starting. I'm now like doing my thing. We're kind of, I'm making a little more than him at this point because it's a brand new venture. And then all hell breaks loose three years into the restaurant business. The U.S. goes into a huge recession. They had two of three locations that were complete dogs. We were upside down with the house. And there is nothing other than a major health crisis or a death that is more stressful than dealing with no money and not being able to pay your bills. Like when they've studied this, that there is a significant impact on your ability to be happy and to manage stress based on just an achievable amount of money as a baseline level. It's at this point that my husband's mental health starts to go off a cliff. It's also at this point that my resentment and mental health starts to go off the cliff because I too have bought into this notion that he's supposed to provide. My money's my money. My money's like the extra money, like the go to Disney World money, the kids can like get new cleats money. His money is supposed to be the money. Right. Traditional roles here. And so what's interesting about this is if you have that experience with your partner, regardless of your gender, regardless of what kind of relationship with you're in, I want you to stop and consider that if you're putting pressure on your partner when it comes to finances, that is your ambition. That is your desire. It is not their responsibility to pay your bills or to provide for you. And too often we women in particular are looking to a partner to fulfill our own ambition. And meanwhile, that partner of yours might also have societal pressure to be providing. And, you know, just like we women 
are trained to kind of look at one another and size each other up and oh, thin or tall or this or that. And my boobs are this size. Like we obsess about how we look and our physical form as a way to compare. Dudes are doing this about their bank accounts and the cars they drive and the house they have. And the, they are because society just keeps reinforcing that. Like if you're not a dude that can really provide for your family, you're fucked. And providing, by the way, doesn't in societies where, like Lane mean love and emotional connection. Mm. It means money. So true. Right? Mm -hmm. And so Chris's mental health starts to plummet. Because also their self-esteem is tied to it. Correct. So now it's what they hold their value to now starts to going down. So now their self-esteem starts to go down with it because that's how they feel. They, that's what they are. They believe that they bring yeah. to the table yeah. to make themselves feel better. Just like we women were trained to believe that someday the, the prince is going to come in, that your worth is about somebody else liking you. Choosing you. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it doesn't ever occur. Like I was sitting with my, our daughters who are 23 and 22 and a group of their friends this summer. And I'm like, when are you guys going to understand that you can choose? Why are you all sitting there talking about how you go out to these bars and nobody comes up to you? Why is it up to them? I think it begins in middle school when you go to the first dance and it's presumed that the little boys are going to ask the little girls to dance. Yeah. It's, it's sick, honestly. And, but, but we're all getting it in different ways. And so I'm trying to explain it this way because... You know, I fully own that for a long time in my marriage, I was putting pressure on Chris to either succeed in the corporate world or I was angry at him because he was failing as an entrepreneur. But all of that was my ambition. See, I married a guy who doesn't give a shit about money. That dude would live in a yurt. I mean, as it is, we live on a mountain in Vermont. You can't see another human being from where we live. You can't even hear them. He would prefer to not have tons of stuff. He doesn't care about that game. He had a father who ran one of the largest advertising agencies in the world, went from mailroom to CEO. And so Chris watched somebody climb the ladder and he lived in his father's shadow forever and believed that if he were successful in business, he would be able to be respected and loved by his father. That's what that was all about. And now you're echoing that kind Correct. of response. So he, of course he marries a woman that is like climbing her own ladder and like literally the personality type of his father. And I chose somebody who is deeply spiritual and grounded and stable and kind because I would, I would self-destruct with somebody that was as ambitious mm -hmm. and as crazy as I am. Chris needs my energy and life force and I need his stability. So, you know, he starts falling off a cliff mentally because not only is he failing in his business, but friends and family have invested. So he's not only letting himself down, He's got a wife who's pissed off and angry. He's got payroll that's bouncing. He's got a business he's trying to save. He's got investors that he's let down. Like he was in a really dark place when he finally got out of the restaurant business. Um, by this point, you know, I'm just like trying to keep us above float. I'm 
working all these consulting jobs. I'm like just doing whatever I can to help us pay the bills. I, it was awful. Um, and, you know, we slowly start to chip away at it and they slowly start to turn the business around and ultimately sold it to an investor and Chris left. But for the two years after he left the restaurant business, he hadn't been paid a salary in a year. And then he spent two years just trying to find himself. And I was in charge because he was lost. And I didn't realize how lost he was because I don't even think he was aware of how lost he was in terms of the shame that men feel when they're not successful and the self-criticism that they put on themselves when they don't provide. And when you feel that much emotional pain, you either numb it, that's where addiction comes in, you self-destruct. There's all kinds of like terrible things that can happen because we don't, you know, we don't want to feel that pain. And so thankfully, Chris, you know, went inward, did a ton of therapy. He, that's when he became a yoga instructor and started studying meditation and working with a therapist. It's, uh, it took him a while to realize that he was struggling with depression. And that was yet another one of those things. It's like, oh my God, first I can't pay the bills. Now I'm also mentally weak. So he didn't want to even admit that. And I'll tell you, like there was a lot of rage that I felt and a lot of resentment that I felt. And I guess I, I felt it because in the beginning, because I just bought in to the what society tells you. And what's interesting is that our kids say, and Chris will say the same thing, and I certainly do, that the greatest gift of their childhood was that from basically most of middle school all the way through high school, Chris has been the primary parent. And Chris grew up with a dad that was never home. And the irony is he always wanted to be an entrepreneur because he thought it would give him more flexibility to be home. And I think oftentimes life hands you what you want, but not in the way you thought you were going to get it. Mm. Meanwhile, he's deeply struggling because he feels like here I am on a Tuesday at 2.30 in the afternoon in the pickup line. And I can sit here and tell myself that I'm happy to be a stay-at-home dad, but the truth is it feels like there's something wrong. It feels like I failed. And because he didn't like say, I want to be a stay-at-home dad. And I'm like, it just is what happened. And meanwhile, I'm all over the place. And we would do this thing where every time the bill would come at a restaurant, I would just kick him under the table to pay it because I knew me putting the card out was very triggering. For him? Yes. How did you feel about that? Um, you know, I think in the very beginning, I was proud of myself and then I was kind of annoyed, but what really flipped it for me was this, is when I started to realize that this is actually what I, like I'm ambitious, I love building shit. I'm, I'm driven by making an impact. Chris is too, but in a totally different way. And I feel like through all of this chaos, we actually landed in the right roles in our relationship. And the cool thing for our children 
is they have watched parents go from both earning to dad's an entrepreneur to a business failing to mom stepping into the big role and taking the lead to dad being home and being around and how amazing is that to then dad launching his men's retreat business called Soul Degree to mom then doing a book to then dad then getting his master's. He's starting at the age of 53, getting his, his, his master's in therapy and psychology. Like just they've seen this sort of reinvention, mm -hmm. partnership, gender bending, traditional role, like all of it in the course of, you know, the 26 years that we've been together. And I think that is hugely important because the truth is that the gender roles that have been imposed on us are complete fucking horseshit. And I personally believe that for women in particular, it is critical that you earn money because money is power and money is freedom and money gives you a seat at the table, whether that is your kitchen table or it is a table at a restaurant or a table in a boardroom. They, you cannot deny that there is a power dynamic in money because I will tell you in my own relationship, when I started, when I was the only one earning money, boy, did the power flip and boy, did I feel entitled. Ooh. All of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is the way dudes think. Oh, interesting. Chris and I would get in a fight about something. Like I'd be on the road all week traveling. I'd come home tired. He's been home all week with the kids. He's tired. And I come in and I, whatever it may be, I might dump my suitcase right by the door and spread all my shit out. And he says something. Could you put it in the closet? I can't tell you how many times I almost said, are you kidding me? Do you know I've been working all week? As if what I'm doing is more important than what he's doing. And I think it has less to do with the gender than it has to do with the way that money creates a power dynamic in a couple. What up, homie? I've got something free and new to share with you right now. How often are you visited by that negative voice in your head telling you that you're not smart enough, that you're not good enough, experienced enough, not fill in the blank? One of the most powerful things you can learn to do in life is to turn that negative voice into your bestie. And I want to teach you how to do that and so much more in my four steps to becoming confident workshop. And guys, the most amazing thing is you can actually register for completely free for this workshop. So click the link on your screen and I'll see you on the inside. Like th this is the thing about money in a relationship. Power follows the money and power dynamics are driven a lot by who, like it's presumed that the person that makes the money has the say. Unless you work hard to eradicate that. So one thing, I love that. And one thing actually Tom and I, because I was very aware of that early on. So, you know, I was a housewife for eight years. So I was very aware that I never wanted to go and ask him. I was like, that doesn't make me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm, um, I'm less than him. It wasn't him. It was my own thinking of it. And I remember having this discussion with him and he was like, well, babe, of course, like we'll take my salary and we split it because you earn half. He's like, you just, you're at home earning half. So that was actually really early on where it was like, okay, we'll just take the money. We put them, you know, like I was really yeah, handing I would never the money. tolerate separate accounts. 
Like, I feel like if, if you're with somebody and they make more money and they're demanding separate accounts, you have an inequitable relationship. Yeah. It wasn't a separate account. It no, was that's all, what I mean. Oh, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm yeah, saying yeah, you yeah. guys did the yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah. Because I always said to Chris, dude, I can only do what I do because you are doing what actually matters. How did you get to that point then? Because He you... didn't believe it. I believed it. Because I value family. I value the fact that Chris is home. Like, I don't want to travel and not have one of us there. And so I'm like, of course this is your money. Because I'm, I wouldn't be able to do this without mm. your support. And then he stepped in and started doing all kinds of stuff and like um, <clears throat> acting as the C or being the CFO of the company, hugely helpful as we started to grow. And then it became very apparent, okay, you managing operations in my business is not your calling. <laughs> You're not, this is not what makes your heart sing. And so, and it's also bad for a marriage because all we do is talk about work now. And I don't want to do that. But I think that that is critical. That if you don't value the support that your partner provides, that's a huge problem. What I love, everything that you're saying as well, is it's both sides of it. Because, you know, it's him feeling sensitive, feeling like he's not worthy, which is a trigger from childhood. And I definitely believe, at least for myself, don't want to say it for other people, my triggers are mine to own. My triggers are mine to work on and my triggers are mine to overcome. Mm -hmm. I don't look to Tom to get me over my triggers. Yep. But I do get ask him to help me until I'm okay with it. So if there's something that triggers me, it's like, hey, right now I'm being triggered. Please don't say this word. I'm working on X, Y, and Z. And as we go, I'm going to get better at the trigger. And now then afterwards you can use that word or whatever yep. it is. So I definitely think it becomes these two sides, right? Where one person needs to work on one side and then you need to work on that idea or the attitude of you get home and you're like, I've been uh, traveling all week. And so, you know, why can't I leave my suitcase here? Um, in moments like, did you ever watch the movie Sliding Doors? I have long never seen ago, that. A long time ago, Gwyneth Paltrow. Never where seen it. Basically, she goes to get on a train. And I don't really remember the whole story, but the concept. So she's running for a train and she misses it, right? The doors close. Doors, sliding doors close. And the, as soon as the doors close, the movie starts with what life would have looked like if she made the train. And then oh, all wow. this other stuff happens on the train. And you see these completely different tra trajectories of their lives because she missed that sliding door moment. The, the idea of there's this one moment or two where you go, I can make this decision and now your life is completely different or I can make this decision and before you know it, your life is completely different. As you're telling the story, I really was thinking about how many people have those sliding door moments where they go, oh, my, my partner, my husband, whoever, uh, he's insecure, he's bringing this to the table, I can't do anything right, and so I have to leave this relationship. Or the sliding door moment like yourself where you both decide to work on it together. And it's not about him it's not about just you. It's about both of you. And you both come together and in working on it, now you can say you've been together for 26 years. But so many people stop at that, I don't know what year it was, but like that 14-year mark where they go, I'm done. I'm done because they get triggered over everything I do. I've got this dream. I've got this ambition. And maybe they're holding me back, quote unquote. Right, right. How did you work through that? Because again, that sliding door moment can dictate whether your relationship fails or where they can be like you, where you can sit here right now and you can say, we've overcome this. Well, number one, 
couple rules around this for me personally. You have to be willing to work on yourself. So couples therapy, in my opinion, doesn't work that well if you're not also willing to work on yourself. Second, you cannot change your marriage alone. Can't do it. And so if you're in a situation where you're working on yourself and you're willing to change, but you have a partner that won't go to therapy or won't work on themselves or won't get sober or won't take med- Like I actually said to Chris, one of the conditions is you have to take medication for a year for depression. Dr. Eamon just looked at your brain and said, normally when he sees a brain like this, they're already dead. Not from natural causes. And the fact that you meditate and you are basically sober, except for if like you're going to have a sip of champagne or something, which is almost never. And you exercise every day. You have an incredible relationship with your kids and you have very meaningful work. You have done absolutely everything to address your depression, but you're still locked in this fog. You need a ladder. Like this is going to work with this. And so if you are making very clear and reasonable requests based on what you need from your partner in order for them to be working on themselves or to show up for you in a way where the toxic behavior or the scary or unhealthy behavior is is getting the support, if you have somebody that will not go to therapy or will not like mm-hmm. actually do the things that are a bare minimum that you need them to do to stop yelling at you, to stop, like, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That, that sort of thing. Then you're out. You're did you out. give him an ultimatum then? I did about the medication. Did you? Yeah. Because I, he had been struggling for a long time and I didn't even realize how much he had been struggling. And the medication was something that I needed him to do because there was a fog there. And I could see that there was a fog there. And I knew that it was something bigger than him. And so it made a huge difference. And after a year, it had made a huge difference. He doesn't take it anymore. How did you do the ultimatum? Sorry, this is one of these so powerful things that you're kind of like, yeah. Everyone at home is like, how do you do that? You sit down and tell them. And you tell them in therapy. It was over the course of, of literally months and months and months of mm-hmm. talking about particular issues. And then finally I said, here are my non-negotiables. Mm. You have to take antidepressant medication. And what was interesting about it is the reason why, because Chris is not anti-medication, but it triggered the feelings of being a failure. And finally, he connected the dots to this deeper story. I, I am a failure. I can't even like, he, like get a hold of this. And so that was a huge transformative moment in our relationship. <clears throat> and, and <clears throat> excuse me, a really beautiful one. And, um, you know, the thing is about my husband is he is the kindest, most amazing person. And it just goes to show you that when you try to organize your entire life around living up to somebody's expectations, whether it's your father's 
or society or your spouses or your friends, you will be miserable. Mm -hmm. And so I feel grateful that we had the breakdown that we had. I feel grateful that all of this came to the surface because most of us are really amazing at coping or numbing or avoiding or running away from. Like I think I've spent years trying to outrun my anxiety, my childhood trauma, busyness became my addiction and it also became my death sentence. And one of the greatest gifts that happened during the pandemic was life stopped and I couldn't go anywhere. And when I couldn't go anywhere and I couldn't run to catch a plane, I became present to the campaign of misery that was running nonstop in my head. Mm -hmm. And I often look at Chris and I say to him, I like I break into tears and I'm like, thank you for being with me. Like, I know I'm not easy. And I know I'm a positive and optimistic person, but I also know that this intensity is really hard. And because I want to be softer and I am a very loving person. But Chris and I kind of got into these roles where I'm like playing the role of his dad. Mm -hmm. Very familiar to him. It really brought to the surface these old generational patterns that don't serve us. And so, you know, one of the things that I would say is if you have someone that you're in a relationship with and there's a lot of friction, which we all have if you've been, you know, with somebody for a while, work on yourself, start becoming aware of that alarm, learn how to actually give yourself the love and reassurance that you didn't get as a kid in those moments where you feel separate. The second thing I would say is the greatest gift, if you can afford it, is having some kind of marriage person, counselor, therapy person, social worker, spiritual guide, whatever. You can talk to once a month because it becomes a place where a third party can actually witness the dynamics between the two of you that you're so used to that neither one of you see. And it gives you a safe place to practice new ways of speaking and to air out shit. Like one of the things we've been talking about <laughs> with our therapist is the fact that everybody in the family wants a new puppy. And Chris takes care of the dog. And he's like, I know how this rodeo goes. This new puppy comes rolling in here and everybody's enamored for two weeks. And then guess who's up at 545 in the morning? Me, and I don't want a second dog. Oh, come on, Dad, come on, Chris, don't be a party. But Mel, that is a boundary. You calling me the party pooper or the questioner really invalidates me because you're not hearing my concern. You're not seeing me. And so we have literally spent two or three sessions talking about the fact that Chris's opinion is correct. He shouldn't trust me and our 17-year-old son because we have not demonstrated through our actions that we can be trusted around the dog in terms of being the primary person with the dog. And so we had to come up with, well, what are all the things, if my son and I really want the puppy, what are all the things we would have to do? And so... It was a really interesting conversation because I had to see my own toxic behavior 
of using enthusiasm to bulldoze people. Oh, and that's what actually I was going to follow up and ask because you said earlier um, we've got into a pattern. And so especially when you've been someone with someone for a while, that pattern, sometimes you don't even realize it's a behavior, right? You're just like, oh, it, it, it is versus, oh, no, I'm bringing this to the table over and over and over again. So just like you said, that's so powerful of that you used your enthusiasm. And I've heard you also speak about how... Um, you know, the, the dismissiveness in the language that we use, but sometimes may not realize we're using it. Um, there was like something that you said one time, Chris asked you like, or something like, like, well, what's the weather like? And you're like, I'm not a freaking news reporter. Things like that, where sometimes like maybe you are just joking, but it underlying, if you do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, even if you say a little comment like that, that maybe you are just joking, it's built up where now that is an, something that has actually triggered him that now makes him feel dismissive. How do you start to unwind that pattern? I think you just start to do it by noticing. Again, it's going back to this like really simplistic advice. If Chris says to me, what's the weather gonna be? And I'm like, I don't know. Do I look like a weather reporter? Something like that, like really just snarky ass thing. If I say that to him, he is going to feel the friction in his body. And he is going to have an experience that he doesn't matter. He is going to, in that moment, his body will remember opening up the door of his childhood home and nobody's there yet again. And so, and it doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter if he asks. He asked nicely. He was just curious. He mm -hmm. thought since I was up early, I might know. I always know, so why shouldn't I ask? He didn't realize it was a landmine to step on. But now all of a sudden, he's feeling that friction. That's step one, notice it. Step two is to absolutely then just soothe yourself for a second. You know, just put your hand on your stomach or just like go, oh, there it is, there's the little me. I just feel separated from Mel right now because she made me, she made fun of me. She's an asshole to me. Notice that and actually validate it. And then you need to say something. But do you think it's his responsibility to tell you in those moments yes. that's how he's feeling? Because yes. if you said that to me, I would just laugh, right? Because I don't yeah, because have the baggage. Right, exactly. That's my, yeah. That you said Correct. your triggers are personal. You also said they're your responsibility. Yeah. You cannot expect another human being to know where your emotional landmines are. Mm. And if somebody steps on an emotional landmine inside of you, which you know when it happens because you feel friction in your body, that's the emotional landmine from your past exploding. So do you recommend then a good place to start when you're getting into even a relationship is listing out what your emotional landmines are? Well, I think you need to do that for yourself. Whether you're in a relationship or not. Yes, yeah. because your roommate's going to trigger it. <laughs> you know how people get in these really like, ah, these, these emotional tizzies with, with roommates or, or like people they live with like in college. They leave their dishes in the sink. Mm. What is that actually making somebody feel? It's making you feel disrespected. It's making you feel like your need to have the kitchen clean doesn't matter to this person. It makes you feel separate. It's the same thing. 
you will not be able to express the boundary in an effective way if you haven't first recognized what it's triggering in you. It starts with you. So yes, I think everybody should. Everybody should absolutely do this. And the other thing that's really interesting is that I have through, you know, all this work that not only Chris and I have been doing, but that I have been doing to really once and for all deeply heal this alarm of anxiety in me and to simplify my life and to truly be happier and more connected to people that I care about. One of the things that has been really interesting about this is that I have noticed how often I block love, that I don't even allow it to flow in my direction. Can you give me an example? Yeah, like I, since I've been working on this, like when, when you came out with the, with the balloons, because today's my birthday, or yeah. last year when you like celebrated me on my book launch day, there's something about the work I'm doing and our relationship where I am able to like galley doors on a kitchen, mm. allow it to flow so free, freely and effortlessly with you. I can receive it from you. I can give everything back to you, but I haven't always been that way. And it's because of the separateness that so many of us, myself included, had the lived experience that it comes your way based on a transaction, that it's conditional. And so it means that when you would allow it in, there is a cost. And so for me, one of the biggest things that I've done in my marriage that has really improved it is how I'm showing up and seeing, and it makes me really sad to think about the number of years that, you know, my amazing, kind husband was trying to love me. Oh, I'll come down tonight, babe. I'll drive down. I'm like, oh, it's okay. You don't need to come. I got it. I got it. And then I'm lonely and I'm alone and I'm continuing with my story that it's all on me. And I've blocked love. And so there's a huge part of this too. If you want to work on your relationship of really taking a look at where do you stop love from coming in? Where is your inability to trust and to allow it to flow into your life, not letting you link in a more profound way with your friends or, you know, the, the lover of your life. Mm. And so the other thing that I wanted to say, Lisa, about working on it, if you have somebody that's willing to go to therapy or if you have somebody that's willing to do the work, you cannot change your marriage if you are with somebody who will not actually do the work. That's number one. You can change how you feel in it, but you cannot change the dynamic entirely. However, I don't know a single person who has been married as long as you and Tom and Chris and I have been married who hasn't had really difficult periods in their relationship. Mm -hmm. And I don't know a single couple that has been married as long as you and Tom and me and Chris have been married, who have worked at it, who regretted it. Ooh. Now, that doesn't mean you should stay forever and try to change something that makes you miserable with a partner who's not willing to do the work. 
But if you have somebody that is willing to meet you halfway, you will never regret at least trying to make it better. Dude, I think that that is so freaking strong because the amount of people that, and you actually answered my next question, because the amount of people that will stay in a relationship and try and make it work, and then eight years later, they look back, they leave the relationship, like, I've just wasted eight years of my life, they weren't going to change anyway, I spent mm-hmm. the last eight years trying, and literally you just answered, it was like, well, are, well, are they willing to or not? Yeah, like you, you need to... Like, you're not trying to fix the relationship if they're not actually meeting you halfway. Mm -hmm. And look, it may take you eight years to do the work personally to find the courage to leave and the clarity to leave. You may be so conditioned from your childhood or you may be so spun around by somebody who has a narcissistic personality or somebody who's abusive Mm -hmm. and Going to therapy for yourself, even if they won't, that will actually change the relationship because it will change you. And from a position of better clarity, power, confidence, and support, you will finally be able to see things that you can't see when you are mired in your own trauma or constantly have the alarm going off but don't know what to do or you're being emotionally abused or physically abused. What about the people, though, that try to keep them down? Because when you have couples where one of them's really growing and developing and improving, especially Mm -hmm. as you do your own work, right, you start to get more comfortable in setting boundaries. You always hear, it's like, oh, my God, you're changing. Oh, you've changed. And partners sometimes try to keep you back, try to keep you small. Um, I think that this is an absolutely natural part of what happens when one person in a relationship is growing and the other one isn't. And I'm gonna give you an example of how everything we've talked about works in this scenario. And again, I will be the bad guy. So Chris, as I mentioned, uh, does not drink. I mean, it's not like, like he's been sober for a couple of years and then maybe he'll like have a beer on occasion or like if he were here for my birthday, he'd probably drink a half a glass of champagne, but take it or leave it. And when he first started not drinking. Because he was drinking too much and then he decided oh, not yeah, to. Oh yeah, he was numbing anxiety and depression wow. with four bourbons a night. Oh wow. Yeah, and I was drinking a lot too. Like we were both numbing and outrunning all of it Mm -hmm. back in the day. So when he left the restaurant business in 2014, he did not drink or smoke weed for two years, period. Just cold turkey. And I remember the first couple nights, he's like, I'm not drinking. I need to get my health in order. I need to heal myself. I need to do some deep work. Like I'm really fucked up. And so I'm like, okay, I got it. I was like, whoo, this is a great idea. And I was really supportive for about three days. And then his change became kind of annoying because I was used to opening up a bottle of wine while I cooked dinner. And here's what's interesting. The fourth night, I open up a bottle of rosé. I'm cooking up dinner. I go to pour myself a glass and I'm like, would you like a glass of wine? He's like, nope, I'm all set. And I'm like, you sure? I mean, it's just like juice. And he looks at me and he says, Mel, I said, no, do not ask me if I want to have a glass of wine again. And I said, well, I'm really sorry. You're right. You're right. You're right. Oh my God. You're right. You're trying not to drink. I'm so sorry. It's just that 
I feel self-conscious opening up this bottle and pouring myself a glass of wine. I feel like there's something wrong with me. And he said, Mel, nobody cares what's in your cup but you. And if my choices are making you question yours, maybe you have some work to do. And so I want to tell everybody that story because when anybody grows or changes, it makes the people around you question what they're doing. So if you stay in on a Saturday night and your whole group of college friends are used to going out, but you're staying in because you're working on your business plan, people are going to go, come on, Lisa, but come on. Because you staying in makes them stop and think about what they're doing. When you start getting up at six o'clock in the morning and going to a new spin class, when your roommates are sleeping and hungover or your partner is, it makes them question why they're laying in bed. And it's easier to poke fun at you, just like I did with Chris, than to actually push yourself to change. And so that type of behavior is 100% normal. You should absolutely expect it. And if it continues, do what Chris did and push back on it. That's again, this boundary thing that you have to know your triggers. God, I love that. And you're so damn self-aware and so open because you said it earlier, like I'm the asshole. I think just admitting it allows you now to change, right? It now allows you to have that better relationship. And so in moments like that, where you do this self reflect, I can just imagine like, as you were saying, I was like, oh yeah, I get it. Because when you're with someone, there's a certain behavior that then gets accepted. They accept you, you accept them. And then by them stopping it, it now may bring up shame, guilt, all the things that you don't feel when they do it with you. But now all of a sudden, you do feel it because now you're quote unquote alone. Yeah, I'll give you another example. And this one's like really benign. But again, it's one of those little things in a relationship that can like explode into a big thing. So, um, the other night I was home in Vermont and I'd spent the day um, working all day and we were leaving the next morning to start this two week trip to go on the road to promote the podcast. And so I finished working at like 530 at night. I come out of the upstairs office where my, you know, podcast studio and where we work, come down into the kitchen give Chris a big old hug. I'm so excited to hang out with him. And he's like, oh, I forgot to tell you, I have a two hour Zoom call tonight because I'm leading a uh, discussion about, I can't remember what it was, for all the alumni of Soul Degree, you know, his retreat. And I felt that like, that kind of like, are you kidding? What, that comes, that little injustice, that little, like, what, what, this is my, uh, 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 and because of all the work I'm doing, I noticed it. Just, I always like put my hand right here. And then I just said, oh, um, okay, well, I'm sad. I need to tell you that I'm sad because I was really wanting to just be with you tonight. And he said, I know. I said, I'm really sorry. He said, I, I don't know why, you know, you didn't see it in the calendar. I, I, I apologize. I spaced that tomorrow you're leaving when I scheduled this. I'm really sorry. Mm. Can you like wait until nine o'clock to eat so we can eat together? 
And so instead of it being the old thing, which is me being pissed and then sort of like, oh, okay. Mm. And then him not feeling supported. And it's just a function of being, both of us being kind of busy. We were able to just diffuse it, ask for what we need, express how we were feeling. We're both disappointed because he realized when I told him that I wouldn't be done till 5.30, that this, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and it became a moment for connection instead of one of those little like, you know, death by a thousand cuts, sort of emotional things that happen in a relationship. And that's so, and being that honest, like I really want people to, you guys have been together for 26 years. I've been with Tom for 22. We just uh, celebrated our 20 year wedding anniversary. And that communication, that level of transparency is forever. It's like the work in a relationship, it needs to be like, as you grow, as your partner changes, you need to kind of evolve together and then be honest with it. And as you were saying the story, literally two days ago, so I got COVID weeks back. And so because I had COVID, I wasn't near Tom because he couldn't afford obviously to get sick because if we're both sick, our business stops. And so he's... So <gasps> that was it too. I'm sorry to interrupt oh, you, no. but Chris had COVID for the four oh. days. Like he was also quarantining for like five days and I felt this deep sadness yeah like did you just like totally miss him because you're in the same house so and you can't be it becomes a thing that you have to start to go deep inside because it's easy to go oh well it's just i've just got covid and you're just in the other room and so it got to the point where we were facetiming each other because he then slept in another room so we were facetiming each other and then he traveled and then as soon as he got back i then left so literally for three weeks we don't really like actually hold hands, have that skin to skin. Mm. Then I go away. Now I got back like two days ago and I get back and we've got a deal. I never have to pick him up from the airport. He never has to pick me up. That's a waste of time because now you're going, you're driving halfway. Anyway, so we just, because productivity is like one of our high, high values that we both have, it's not productive babe, for you to come to the airport. So that's just an agreement. But all my other friends, their partners come to the airport to pick them up. I would not, I'd be like, what? Well, actually, when I lived in Boston, it's not true. I would just take a car service home. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to take, like, I don't think twice about it. But there's these death by a thousand cuts, like you said. And I'm very, I find myself very secure in my relationship. But it's a death by a thousand cuts. So I don't realize the first cut starts three weeks ago, right? And so now we don't talk to each other. He gets busy. There were a couple of nights that he was in Florida. So the time difference, we missed each other. So we didn't even get to say goodnight to each other. And then it comes to the point where I get back from my trip. He doesn't pick me up from the airport. I don't expect him to. But then I come home and I expect that, oh, my God, baby. And I walk in and he's in this intense business call. So he doesn't even look at me. Now, he's in, in a very intense business call. So to him... He's like, if I look at her now, I'm, he knows how tense he feels. So he's like, if I look at her now, she's not going to feel the warmth. So I just won't look at her. Oh, my God. Now, of course, oh. I walk in yes. and I go, he doesn't even look at me. <laughs> I would rather the intense look and the like pointing at the phone. That's what I would rather. But we're both not mind readers. Right. So in his actions, it becomes the last freaking gaping cut that now I'm just bleeding everywhere, right? If we could stay with that metaphor. And so I just get upset. 
Now, it's not normally like me. I'm normally emotionally sober. I can normally regulate myself, identify where the uncomfortableness is, where like the yep, process, yep. but I just fucking lost it. And I was like, <gasps> you don't care about me. And as soon as you start to use absolutes, you know it's an emotional right, thing. Right. With someone that you love and you've been with. Yes. Right? So it's like, you're not romantic anymore. And it became this big grand thing. And then, of course, bless him, because we've known each other for a while. He's like, okay, my, my wife, she's been pushed to the edge. So I know, okay, and I even said, I'm really tired. I haven't seen you in a long time. I just need time to cool down. Because I knew myself. And I knew that anything else out of my mouth was just going to be more absolute. Right. That aren't actually true. Yes. So going back to your point of, like, identifying when you're the asshole, I then afterwards calm down realize oh lisa that was ridiculous you overreacted you need to say you overreacted you need to go to him and say that but you have to do the work and identify where it started from and that's where i started to go, feeling oh. of separate it felt separate yeah and you've been feeling ago. that separate feeling for a while but i didn't ever i didn't speak up over those three yeah. weeks because i was like oh well he's in another town well i've got covid Going back, to, you just use the reasons and the excuses of maybe why you're not connecting. And sometimes it then ends up on this big eruption. Yeah. There's one more thing that I'm desperate to talk to you about. Yeah, sure. That you dropped to me a few weeks ago. Uh -oh. And I was like, how are we going to talk about this? Is you did MDMA. I did. With your husband. I did. Talk to me about that. What the hell made you try it? Yep. I'm fascinated. How did you feel? And what were the results? And do you recommend it? There was a lot of First questions. First of all, but it is one of the most profound experiences I've ever had. I absolutely not only recommend it, I wish that it would become fast-tracked through the FDA even quicker than it's happening right now. Uh, Can you explain what MDMA is? Yeah, MDMA, I guess the street name is ecstasy. It is a uh, psychedelic drug that um, has extraordinary uh, mycidinal and healing benefits, particularly for treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. And there is a massive uh, therapeutic community. Uh, I'm not even going to say what state it's in because... A lot of this is being done underground right now, but there's a particular state that has a very robust therapeutic community that is tied into MAPS. And it's a group of therapists that specialize in what call, what's called the integration therapy, which means there's a lot of buzz and talk about all of the kind of tourism psychedelics. That is not what this is. This is not doing ketamine at a party or taking Molly and going to Burning Man. Right. This is um, going and doing in a controlled, intentional setting a psychedelic drug under a therapist's treatment and then six to eight months of integration therapy afterwards in order to have whatever it is that happened in that experience impact your life long term. So I've been very interested in what it would be like to do this for anxiety and childhood trauma. MDMA, one of the reasons why it's very effective is it suppresses the amygdala, which is the fear center. And so you can revisit the past or future things that you're terrified about without having a fear response. Mm. So it allows you under the guidance of a therapist to truly 
address things that your body remembers or are stored in the wrong parts of your brain from a place without fear. So the way that we did it is this is a protocol for couples where you have separate experiences at the same time and you do your therapy together. So that separate experience becomes a shared experience in which you can uh, support one another in your healing and in your growth. And then after you do it with the therapist, you then do one alone together, just the two of you. The first time that you do it, you set an intention. My intention the first time that I did it was I wanted to look back and see the beauty in my life because our brains tend to make us remember the things that weren't so great based on the negativity bias. And so I took it and as it starts to kind of take effect, you start to feel very warm, it takes about 30 minutes. And they, uh, you know, Tom would go over there and you would go over there and you have a little like beautiful mattress on the floor, cot and all your little blankets and your pillows. And, uh, this was a husband and wife team that does this. And so she sat with me and he sat with Chris. Mm. You put on a blindfold, you put on stereo headphones and a six hour insanely delicious playlist that is like a combination of Buddha bar meets yoga meets like, I don't even know how to describe it. And the MDMA is the medicine, but the music is the guide. And because you are, you have no visual stimulation and because all you hear is the music and, you know, they also burn beautiful, like, you know, these guys burn like the Palo Santo and like mm. all these beautiful smells that just trigger all this stuff. Every time the music changes, for me, I experienced like a six hour highlight reel of my past, present and future. Wow. And not watching, but literally feeling in your body. It was absolutely extraordinary. And I left the experience absolutely feeling like somebody had taken coconut oil on a really brittle rope and just smoothed it out in terms of my nerves. Just this deep sense of calm. And um, it was just extraordinary. And then Chris and I recently did the second part where we were together on our anniversary. And we were at this beautiful resort and we had our own little cottage and we did our ceremony. You know, first you do your Zoom check in with the things and then we just sat together on a couch for six hours and just connected and talked and just looked at each other. And it was just crazy. It's like the outside world disappeared. I feel like we, through the therapy we've been doing, through both of us really working hard on ourselves, through some big changes in our lives, moving from the house that we had raised our kids in for 26 years to Southern Vermont. All of this has created a whole new chapter and a whole new way for us to grow together as a couple. And it's just been 
It's interesting. I feel in many ways like I'm newly married. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that's due to all the hard work you guys have put in. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But that's so important. So I heard once someone say, I can't remember, it might have been Tom was interviewing somebody, actually, and they basically said, like, look, m most people want a relationship. And if you do, you want it to be successful, correct? And like, yes. Okay, if you want a successful relationship, it's always going to be work. So now the question you have to ask yourself is, is this the person that you're willing to do the work with? Mm. And I always, that really hit me because I was like, yes, there's no easy relationship. No easy relationship. Well, I love that you said the work and here's why. I think we try to find people to escape into. Yeah. We try to mm -hmm. find people to rescue. Mm -hmm. We try to find people to fix. But thinking about it, like, is this actually somebody that I would be willing to work on it with? Is this somebody that as a baseline makes me feel respected, that makes me feel like they care about, you know, my needs? And is this somebody that I can talk to? Mm -hmm. And if you think about it that way, like the work, because it really is like, I wouldn't want to be in business with somebody I don't trust and I can't talk to. And too many of us fall for somebody because of the way that they look or the way that the romance begins, but you don't actually talk about anything. Mm -hmm. Huge mistake. Yeah. Are you going to be talking about this on your new podcast? Oh, for sure. Everything. So I cannot wait to listen to it. So guys, 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 in fact, where can I find the podcast? Where can everywhere. I find you? Where Absolutely can I ever. Mel Robbins, and it's the Mel Robbins podcast. We were trying to think of a like good name, and then we Googled Mel Robbins, and it's like the third thing that people are searching for is Mel Robbins podcast. I'm like, that's what we're naming it. That's amazing. I love that. Guys, 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 you've got to go check out her podcast. If you like what you heard today, I'm telling you, her podcast is an abundance of all of this stuff. She's freaking real. She's no BS. She literally will sit here and tell you the truth. You want to know how she got to 26 years of marriage? She just told you the tips. So go check her podcast out. Check her out. If you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu. If you're not subscribed, guys, click that subscribe button. And if this episode did bring you value, please, please do tell your homies, share it, let us know what hit you in the comments below. And until next time, be the hero of your own life. Peace.